Greetings, fellow citizens of Disneyland. Bricky here, looking back on the week that was Monday, June 13th to Sunday, June the 19th, a.k.a. Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to any of the fathers that are listening. What do you say? Let's look back on the week that was at the Disneyland Resort. This is now the third week that I've been doing this new format of the podcast where I go solo and look back on the week. I want to thank everybody who reached out to me to give me feedback just to say, hey, I'm here. I'm listening. I enjoy this. It was a surprise to hear how many of you found me actually through the podcast Uh, and also fascinating to hear how many of you don't have time for YouTube or you don't like that format. I personally consume a lot of YouTube. I enjoy it. But it's interesting to hear that there is a podcast audience. And that's important for me to know because out of everything that I do, this podcast is the one part of my job that doesn't necessarily make sense. There's no real direct revenue that comes from it. So hearing that some of you do find this to be the best way to stay in touch and that some of you became Club 1313 members because of the podcast, that was the type of feedback that I really needed to hear. So I appreciate it. And when you listen, it doesn't have to be lengthy. It doesn't have to be long. I just like to know that you you heard it and you maybe agreed with something or you disagreed with something. I just simply like to know that you're there. And if I know that you're there, then that means that I want to keep showing up and doing this each and every week for you. And as long as I can see that you're having as much fun as I am, then we'll keep rolling. So friends, let's jump in and look back at the week that was. Disneyland. As I was recording last Monday, we saw the announcement for Halloween coming to the Disneyland Resort. So we'll go into a little bit of that, but not what we did last week. So it's not a rerun, and no, you didn't accidentally click last week's episode. But I do want to get into talking about that this year we will see Halloween run from September 2nd to October 31st, which is the longest Halloween season that we've seen at the Disneyland Resort. But we're also seeing Oogie Boogie's Bash, which I highly recommend going to. We see that going down to, I believe, 23 nights this year. And it was 25 back in 2021, which surprised me because I thought this year they would probably try to go for 30 nights. The event is so popular. I think it's one of the best times ever to visit Disney's California Adventure. I know I say this like a broken record, but I really mean this advice. If you could only go to DCA one time in the entire calendar year, I would say an Oogie Boogie trip would be the best way to see that park. And we'll be talking more about DCA later on in today's episode. But going down to 23 nights, I really hope that this doesn't mean that they crunched the numbers and said, let's sell more tickets. Because last year I went to Oogie Boogie, I think something crazy, like maybe eight different times. I know there was one week that I missed because I was out at Walt Disney World doing my new ritual of going every spring and every fall. So I know that I did miss one week, but I was live streaming from Oogie Boogie every Thursday because I had done that during Touch of Disney and really just kind of enjoyed the ritual of going out and taking everybody to something that's happened at the park that maybe not everybody could make it to. And also trying to give people as much information as possible on how to maximize a night at Oogie Boogie because, man, it goes fast and it's so full of event offerings. My complaint with some of these After Dark events is you can't really tell other than quiet Disneyland or quiet DCA, which, I mean, that's just a premium offering. You don't even need to care about what the theme is. You could just go to any of these nights and say, okay, I'm going to let all these jerks celebrate Christmas. I'm going to celebrate Disneyland, and I'm just going to rip rides with no weights. I mean, if you want a VIP experience, go to one of these things and ignore whatever the theme is. But 
if you go to these things and you're a theme chaser, you're trying to figure out what the theme is and you want to make the most of this unique offering, Oogie Boogie is one that is stacked. And other events I've been to before, I'm like, okay, I've now taken two laps around all of Disneyland and I'm really trying to figure out how this is supposed to feel like a complete Star Wars night or 80s night. You know, Some of them I've been to have been a little bit stretched thin. But the worst one that I've ever been to before was the May the 4th celebration that happened on, conveniently, May the 4th at Disneyland. It was very, very packed. It didn't have the after-hours quiet vibe that I enjoy so much. So normally, if the theme is a bust, the quiet VIP nature is something that you can remember. Like After weeks and weeks of doing Marius Nights, there was one night where I'm like, okay, I've kind of live streamed this enough. People are already over Christmas because it's officially December. And I think what I want to do tonight is do some quiet filming, but also just sort of soak in the ambiance of the park. And one of those Marius Nights was probably my favorite night at the park of all of 2021. I was there by myself. I filmed a lot on Main Street because I did this little sort of Christmas special about the magic of Main Street uh, during the holiday time. And after I have filmed the pieces that I need, I went over by the Haunted Mansion area. I went over to the new Pelican Landing, which is that new balcony that sits over the water, which that's the type of you know infrastructure improvement that I would beg Disneyland to keep doing more of that. Keep adding in more quiet spaces, give them a theme, give them a name. Like I love how the park is broken up into all these little districts and neighborhoods. That's why ironically, Disneyland is somehow a lot like New York. New York City, as you cruise through it, Every little tight street or corridor takes you around the corner to another little small neighborhood that has its own unique name, but also icons that you recognize. So as you're walking through Disneyland, you're like, oh, am I in New Orleans Square anymore? Am I in Frontierland? Am I in the Rivers of America? Am I in Pelican Landing? Am I in Fowler's Harbor? I mean, I just love that neighborhooding of all the little different areas, especially around the Rivers of America. It's kind of what they wanted to pull off for the Pixar Pier neighborhoods, but it just never really materialized. It just feels like very loud part because the Incredicoaster just dominates any vibe over there because it is so insanely loud that it's just always plowing through such a fast paced ride that, you know, there's a new cart coming by what seems like every two and a half minutes just dominating the, the space. And it's a pretty tight area, right? Just because this is where inside outside it doesn't necessarily completely feel like a different neighborhood, even though that's the most isolated example they have. So Disneyland feels a lot like New York city, but when we go out East to Orlando, ironically, Orlando feels a lot more like Los Angeles where they're just kind of bigger neighborhoods further apart. Takes you a long time to get anywhere, but you know, when you're there because it's big and it's decadent, and it's got signs everywhere. And Hey, I live in LA. I love it. But the juxtaposition that Disneyland somehow feels like New York and Disney world somehow feels more like Los Angeles. It's a very interesting crisscross of the culture and geography of those two different parks. But anyways, <laughs> getting back to it, if the vibe is kind of weak for these events, then you can get away and just enjoy, you know, the park as it is. And so one of the merriest nights, which I think I went to every single one of those, I just had a great night kind of getting lost in the park and seeing it quiet and kind of at the end of a long year, just, I don't know, 
saying thankful to somebody. I, I don't really have a relationship with God, and no offense if you do. And I don't like talk to Walt's spirit when I'm in the park. I guess I was just kind of thinking the universe. If I think about where I was at mentally, I was thinking the universe for just giving me my Disneyland back. It was the end of a year where we got in on April. It was now December. And I was able to have this quiet, reflective moment of gratefulness and, and, and just being so happy that something that I loved had returned. That is the power of the after hours, after dark event. That's what I'm dropping the money for is that moment right there. Cause it would be hard to have that moment today as summer season is really getting going out at the resort. So I say this in that that's kind of the thing that's guaranteed to always be there. So the theme could be weak, but the vibe should always be able to be found. But fast forward to the May the 4th evening, the park was actually just very, very crowded. So if you wanted to do the events, it was hard to take advantage of the events. And if you wanted to catch the vibe, well, it was kind of hard to catch the vibe because it was just kind of packed. And a lot of people wandering around that just looked sad because they couldn't seem to figure out what they were supposed to be doing. I bring all this up because I'm saying Oogie Boogie Bash is flawless in its execution, but part of its execution that makes it so great is the amount of crowds that are there. And going to that event on opening night and literally once a week by myself most of the time, taking my wife so that I could kind of enjoy it through her eyes and getting her view of Villains Grove for the first time was such a magical moment. But I hope that they don't raise up the audience levels or the crowd levels because that will really reduce what makes Oogie Boogie's Bash so fantastic because those treat trails, you can rip them. One time I did a live stream trying to figure out how many pieces of candy could I get in an hour. And I'm pretty sure I maybe hit every treat trail or 80% of them in an hour. And then I went over to Flo's, found the table, counted it out, doing this off the top of my head with no notes. I think I ended up with like 150 different pieces of candy, which I wasn't going to bring any of it home. I took a Snickers brownie and I think a peanut M&M. I took two pieces out for myself. And then I'm like, I'm going to find the smallest little kid that's probably not going to be able to do the treat trails. And I want to just dump this candy on them. So I saw a young mom with a very, very adorable little boy. And I go, I, I just walked up and said, Hey, can he have these? And she's like, yeah, it's his birthday. I go, happy birthday, bud. So this kid had the rest of the night to blaze and do whatever he wanted to do. But what he didn't have to do was spend any time in the treat trails. Cause uh old man Bricky as a self initiated challenge figured out that uh, about 150 pieces is what I could cram out in an hour. And I think I maybe did all the treat trails or, or close to all of them. But I remember I was ripping that night. Anyways, taking the event down two nights less I, I just hope it's a calendar thing, and I hope that we don't see big crowds on these after-hour events, because what really makes them special is that quietness, that, that area, that view of the park that you normally don't get to see because the park, rightfully so, is alive and full of people, everybody enjoying their time out at the happiest place on earth, but it's, dare I say, a little happier when you have it all to yourself.
Tuesday and a little bit of Disney business news, which kind of what I wanted to do when I started getting into doing content about Disney. I had two objectives. I, well, three objectives, probably more than three, but I'll focus on three. One, I wanted to take people into the parks that don't have the privilege that I do to go often. So I love the idea of trying to create content that makes people feel like they're there with a friend. That's what I love doing. But two, I also wanted to focus on telling the Disney story because Disney always gets confused on when they try to tell the Disney story, they accidentally always tell a marketing story. So everything that they say feels like an ad, which is a shame because historically the Walt Disney company is one of the best storytelling companies that exist. But when they tell their own story, the greed always shows through, or maybe the desperation for middle management to make sure that upper management sees that they're doing their job. But nonetheless, like when I got to talk to Robert Mills, who's charge of live entertainment over at ABC, I got to do an interview with him. I got to talk to him about his job. And one of the things he's in charge of is the Christmas parade that they show on Christmas morning, right? You know, and if we can't be in Disneyland on Christmas morning, wouldn't it be nice to be there via the TV and see the Christmas parade, even though we all know that it's filmed in October or early November? But the Christmas parade, it's kind of cringy because it always becomes a big ad for visiting Disney parks. And as I talked to him, I said, I would love to see you guys just tell a story on Christmas morning. Like, take us into the park, use the park as a backdrop, Tell us stories inside of there. And we know how to buy tickets. We've done it before. We don't need the Christmas morning parade to remind us that operators are standing by. Pull out your credit card. Like Just literally show us the magic. And guess what? There's this weird thing. When people are happy and they enjoy something, they just magically figure out how to consume it especially when you're one of the world's biggest companies and you have convenient things like websites and 800 numbers and several different ways for people to find a way to buy the magic. So clubbing people over the head with it isn't, I think, the best way to go about it. So one of the things I wanted to do was tell the story of the Disney company in a way that's from the heart. But I also enjoy the business of the Walt Disney Company because... Being in the business of making magic is still a business and it takes money to make the magic. So I'm very fascinated with not only the experience of Disney, but the behind the scenes, how it works and how the money flows. So Tuesday, the Disney stock price dropped below $100 for the first time since March 2020. I wonder what happened in March 2020 that made it drop down to 85 bucks. Hmm. I wonder, I'll have to look back and see what happened on March, 2020, but we find ourselves in June of 2022 and the stock fell below hundred dollars for the first time since back in March of 2020. Now we're not going to get deep into talking about stocks and all that stuff. I own some Disney and I'm sure you do too. And as Warren Buffett would say, when something like this crashes, well, it's, it's a deal for somebody who's ready to buy. And I love being that person. But what I think this means as a fan and Wednesdays, I drop a long format news video over on the YouTube channel and me and my team that I do that with my friend, Gary and Ethan. Uh, we're kind of talking about what do we want to do for this Wednesday because there's not really a lot of breaking news going on right now because it's summer season and it's just about going and enjoying the park. 
And so we're kind of looking in the crystal ball of D23. What announcements should we expect? So I'm not going to get too deep into that now because I have a lot of that to talk about on Wednesday. But I did want to say this as I look back on the week. It's a cautiously optimistic or just cautiously cautious time for Disney Parks fans. Because with the stock being low, that means the company is probably going to manage their spending. And there's a long history of the Disney Corporation always making money from the theme parks. The theme parks are pretty evergreen. They just generate money hand over fist day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. But that damn entertainment business, some movies do really well, some movies don't. But all movies cost a lot to make. So it's a bit of a crapshoot. And this past Friday, when the light year came out, its early estimates were about 20 million off. It hit somewhere in the ballpark of 50 million. They wanted it to be 70 million. And I don't know if you've ever had a million dollars, but if you were missing 20 that you thought you were going to make, it probably felt like you came up pretty short. So where I'm getting at is, is that the theme parks is the easiest thing to take advantage of. Old faithful, always in the background, always churning and burning and doesn't always need lots of new investment capital because there's the history, the legacy, the story. My grandfather went there as a kid and took my dad there as a kid. And my dad took me there as a kid. This is all fictional. I took my dad there as an adult, but this is the way that it's become a multi-generational experience. And as long as the classics are still rolling and they're playing the greatest hits, who cares? People are showing up. So in times when they need to move the money around, well, the theme park keeps generating, but it doesn't always need more. As we've seen with what's happened out at Epcot, they're literally rebuilding part of World Showcase, or I'm sorry, Future World, still learning that part. Love that part. But they're rebuilding essentially part of Future World, pretty much how it was before they tore it down. So instead of going through with their plans, they're like, ah, let's just do something more conservative, kind of something like what we already had because we know that that works. So what I'm getting at here is the low stock price is coming at an interesting moment. And I'm going to tease you with a little something to think about that I'll be going deeper on Wednesday over on YouTube. And no, this isn't an ad to get you over on YouTube. It's just how my brain works. And this is something that happened last week and something I want to go into deeper in a moment when I have all of my notes and thoughts laid out in front of me. And I've been well-researched because I put a lot of work into all of this. But this is where my heart is at today on Monday. Low stock price. Money's not flowing for Disney. They're very, very deep into Disney Plus. It's going to get whatever money they have because they need to hit those projections. They need that to really take off. They bet big on that. And then we have D23 coming up where they do the big parks announcements. So something to think about, and I need to think about it too before I hit record on Wednesday to make my video. Everything that we've seen so far, and I'm not sure why my voice went up and cracked like that, but everything that we've seen so far has been on the Iger playbook. We're still rolling out the Bob Iger playbook because something weird happened in 2020. D23 got moved around. So if we go back to 2019, all the new things are going to happen and many of them haven't, 
All of that was done under the budgeting, vision, and team of Bob Iger. So this, D23, the slate's clean. This is the first look at Bob Chapek's vision for Disney theme parks. And I mean, I know Josh DeMarle's in charge of that division, but still, Bobby C's signing the checks. He's given approval to Smooth JD. There's a chain of command. Kenny Potrocks can't make it all happen on his own. If Kenny P. Rocks could do it all on his own, Disneyland would be wild. It'd be like going to your favorite uncle's house, sit wherever you want, grab a cold one, have a slice of pizza, and let's do the Disneyland thing. That's how Kenny P. Rocks would run it. But there is a chain of command. So essentially, you have to ask yourself this, and this is what me and the team are looking at. The chips are down. The money's down. The opinion's down. The customer satisfaction, I'm going to say, pretty much is down. Does Bobby C. seem like the type of guy, when his back's against the wall, will he bet hard at D23? Will he literally knock your socks off with the most robust and aggressive announcements for the Disney parks in the next two years? Or... If his back's against the wall, the money's down, the popularity's not there, and seems like satisfaction's a little bit low, will he just try to tread water, play it safe, not get noticed, blend in the background, let a couple of other people go, and keep swimming for another day? Kind of thing I know where my opinion is. Would love to know what your opinion is, but I think if you start to think about D23 and the park announcements and where the company's at financially, and historically, when times get lean, they lean on the parks to keep making money, but they don't lean back to dump a bunch of more money into it. Look how long it's taken to get Tron going out on the East Coast. We just got the Guardians out at Epcot. Can't wait to ride that when I return in the fall. We got a surprise of Toontown being taken down to dirt, being rebuilt and reimagined. That was a bit of a surprise, but also when the park came back online, a lot of Toontown wasn't functional. I know they said it was COVID-19 restrictions, but I just did a video this last week where I show you everything that hasn't reopened since the park reopened, and it's a lot. It's a lot of things that it's easy to cut back on. You're already seeing the cut back happen at the park. So as we look forward, do you think? Let me know. Is Bobby C going to bet big and blow us away? Or is it going to be like, oh, all this new stuff is awesome. We already knew all this new stuff was coming. Like, If you're somebody who really thinks that this fall is the big announcement on a new, shiny, awesome Tomorrowland, I don't know, bud. Read the tea leaves. Read the room. Read the financials. Does this look like a company that's ready to bet big? Or does this look like a company that's ready to tell you we're having a great time. Everybody's having an amazing time at Disney parks. We love making all of our fans happy. And here are some new things that are coming. A reimagined Toontown, a new downtown Disney. And guess what? A Pixar Pier Hotel. Maybe, maybe e-ticket and Avengers Campus. But I think that that should be the highest expectation anybody should have walking in. And hey, if that's where we're at mentally, maybe we'll walk out being like, oh my God, that was amazing. They surprised us with so much stuff. But uh, I try to never be the person that knows exactly what's under the Christmas tree because I've been disappointed and broken too many times, not getting what I want every year for Christmas. 
some sort of Powell Peralta skateboard deck and I look at the box and it's small. I'm like, yeah, an original Tony Hawk deck doesn't fit in that box. It's probably a gift card to Starbucks, which is the one thing that I'm guilt-free that I'll spend money on every single day of the year. So cool, free 50 bucks to put on my phone or to forget about in my desk drawer. I mean, I like to go into things with realistic expectations. So I'm just saying, if you're expecting this September, your little heart's going to just explode with all the joy of good things to come. Yo, I'm not being negative. I'm just being realistic. Hey friends, this past week we saw on June 15th, that was Wednesday, Cars Land turned 10 years old at DCA. I, this is the land that defines Disney's California adventure. And in many ways, I could talk about this for an entire episode. Maybe this is a good idea for a future episode. But Cars Land represents the first story in the new chapter of Disney Imagineering land design. When you look at Radiator Springs, it is one complete story. Every building, every attraction, every bit and piece of it adds up to equate a much larger story. If we look at Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, all of the original lands of Walt's original kingdom have little bits and stories, and they're stitched together by a universal theme, which is Adventureland, for example. But we have no idea... Or maybe we do and I'm unaware of it, but what exactly was the relationship between Indiana Jones, the Jungle Cruise, R.I.P. Tarzan's Treehouse, the uh, Adventureland Bazaar, Bingle Barbecue, Tropical Hideaway, and the Tiki Room? They're all in the world of what we think of as adventure safari, but it's a bunch of different vignettes, a bunch of different stories stitched together by a same sort of generic overlapping theme. And don't get me wrong. I love Adventureland. But when you think about Adventureland, and I'm just going there in my mind because I'm thinking of going to the hub and turning left. But if you think about Cars Land, it all works together as a symphony. It all, every piece of the orchestra is playing the exact same song. We would see this trend continued with Pandora out in Animal Kingdom, which uh, I have to say is a really small but beautiful land. And if I'd seen Pandora before I'd seen Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, it probably would have impressed me a lot more because the problem with Pandora is the same problem that you'll see with Avengers Campus. It's so narrow, it's hard to breathe it in. But Cars Land, Radiator Springs, and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, there's a, a breath there, right? It's it's big enough. It's wide enough. So you could actually stand back, feel like you're enveloped inside of it, and really know what it feels like to go to one of these areas. So Cars Land, in many ways, I think it will always sort of be the idea of, hey, this is the future. Now, moving forward, I don't think all lands will be designed in this template, although I wish they would. But it's not that every IP is rich enough, that's intellectual property, is rich enough in its story, its characters, and its landscape to warrant an entire encompassing piece of property themed in one language. But when it works for bigger things like Star Wars or Marvel 
or in this case, a very visual movie that was pretty popular. When it works, it works really, really well. And, you know, everything is a spice, right? If, if you had donuts all the time, you'd be like, I'm so sick of these donuts. But man, right now, I would do anything for a Krispy Kreme glazed chocolate dip. But I loved Cars Land so much. And going back to our last story, this is how Disney chose to celebrate it. 10 ways to celebrate Cars Land's 10th anniversary at the Disneyland Resort. Number one, meet the characters. All right, so far, so good. That's actually content. Meeting the characters is having an experience. Number two, new tote. Tow the new tow mater premium bucket. All right, you already hit us with merch. <laughs> you already hit us with merch on number two. Number three, new Guido photo location. You can now get a photo of Guido out front of Luigi's. It's a fun little photo op. See, I, I would have went with that as number two. Number four, race radiator springs racers well best attraction at dca one of my all-time favorites take a spin on luigi's rollicking roadsters number six score a road trip souvenir i get what they're saying there but you know what i would have said instead of that they're showing they're showing sarge's surplus hut but have you ever stepped in there and seen that there's actually a play set or model of radiator springs all the little buildings and some that don't exist inside of a glass box. It's not really a model, like an imaginary model. It looks more like a Hot Wheels playset. But nonetheless, I would have said maybe stop by Sarge's Surplus to adventure, nah, to explore Radiator Springs in a way you've never seen it with our scale model. Number seven, see Radiator Springs at sunset. Oh man, if you've never done Shaboom, this isn't anything that's advertised in the in the print, you know, flyers and stuff, because it happens at a very specific time, sunset. But if you're ever in DCA and you can time it, this is one of those things. Like when I did my video this week of Forgotten Disneyland, that little show that happens right outside of Snow White's Grotto, right above Pixie Hollow. There's a little body of water, right? Over to your right is Astro Orbiters. Over to your left is Sleeping Beauty's Castle and Snow White's Grotto. Uh, up above you is uh, Pixie Hollow. And then down south of you are those new horrendous flower beds. That is uh, different than what we were promised for Tomorrowland, but that's a different topic for a different time. That little pixie show in there, right? You don't know when it's going to happen. All of a sudden, the water starts illuminating. The music plays. It's like a little magic surprise. And there's normally not that many people over there. So if you're on a date and you can kind of time it right and surprise your partner, it's like, whoa, this is awesome. Surprise Disney magic. Shaboom is the same way. Radiator Springs at sunset each and every evening. And I mean at sunset. Pull out your Apple Watch. Look at what time. Why would you pull out your Apple Watch? It's on your wrist, dummy. Pull out your phone. Look at when the sunset is. Try to get there five minutes before sunset. But don't tell your family and friends why. Like, just try to get over in that area. Come up with some BS excuse. Like, oh, I want to take some photos of some of the signs. And just get them in that zone. And then all of a sudden, when life would be easy. And then they will feel the magic. Back during Touch of Disney, weird that I mentioned in that twice in one episode, but it kind of was a magical time. At Touch of Disney, this was the only nighttime show we had. So if like me, you went to Touch of Disney once a week, and I don't think anybody really did that other than me, went to Touch of Disney, and every night at sunset, you would see everybody who knew that Shaboom was going to happen gather there at the corner of Route 66 and Cross Street. 
And when that show would hit, that was our Fantasmic. That was our World of Color. That was our Main Street Electrical Parade. That was our Disneyland Forever. That was it. But it didn't matter because that was everything. The music playing, I remember people dancing. I even have it in some of my live streams. Like People literally dancing in the streets for this one little disposable moment. But so precious because that was all the magic that we had then. So, Sunset, Radiator Springs, go in there. Five minutes before, don't tell your family what you're doing. Surprise them. Number eight, enjoy a milkshake and meal at Flo's VA Cafe. I would have said maybe check out the decorations of some of the restaurants. Did you know there's a lot of mid-century motor designs inside of some of these? Number nine, make a pit stop at Cozy Cone Motel. And number 10, sightsee along Route 66 to Cadillac Range. Now I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to give us a kiss goodbye. But... Kind of going back to what I was saying before, a lot of this is like, hey, here's a way to spend money. Here's a way to spend money. And I just think the better version of storytelling is here's how to get lost in the magic. Here's how to have a good time. And when people are intoxicated by having a good time, they'll spend money. Like my whole thing with how I make all of my money from doing my content is club1313.com. I don't advertise it a lot. I don't mention a lot. I just kind of allude to that. If you're in the club, we get together, we do meetups. We have this discord where people come in from out of town. Hey, I'm in the parks today. Other people are there. And I've literally seen people come from the other side of the planet. Shout out to you, Greg from criminal Ireland, AKA Australia dude came to Australia, had no Disneyland friends. Literally some of the club 1313 members met up with him took him out on multiple nights of rips. Dude left with so many good Disney friends. And theoretically, it's to support the content, but I wasn't even there. This is just the community that I have built, but I'm subtle in the promotion of that because nobody wants to hear an advertisement. So I believe the idea of best marketing practices is get them lost in the magic, get them having a good time. And then if people are of your tribe, They'll be curious and they'll go and find what they need to find. Now, who am I to tell Disney? Because, you know, they make more money than God. But how much money does God make? But the thing that I wanted to talk about in this story is this is how they market it. And it's kind of a little tag on to what we just talked about. But what I think we're being robbed of is this year for the second year in a row. And I understand why in 2021 there was no resort theme. But I've come to realize I kind of really miss the summer themes. You know, even though Summer of Heroes was a bust because there wasn't an Avengers campus there yet. I was like, what's the theme this year? And the Pixar one was just meh. Imagine if this year was a resort-wide 10-year anniversary of Radiator Springs, Cars Land. How great would that be? If all around the resort, there were just fictional old school billboards, you're only 10 miles away. You ever driven down the coast, the East coast, where they keep telling you how far away you are from South of the border. And then eventually you come over the hill and you just see this giant Sorraro up in the air and you're like, Whoa, we made it to South of the border. It's awesome. You're only excited to get there because they've been dropping billboards since you were outside of New York city, but the billboards get more and more and more, the closer you get. Just imagine if, all around the park, there were things celebrating Cars Land in that old vintage sort of roadside design. Imagine if daily there was a parade, even if it was just all of the characters just went down the, the 
performance corridor and they did a parade. I mean, I'll even let it pass to let red drive through during sunlight hours. And yeah, we won't be able to fully take in the illumination of his trailer, but it'd be fun to see red ripping some laps and maybe the parade stops and DJ does his show and <laughs> chicks love DJ. What I'm saying is, is that one of the, to me, traditions of the summer season is a theme. It kicks off Memorial Day. It ends in September or, you know, right after Labor Day, which will be exactly when Halloween begins. Now that I think about it, we're going to see Halloween in the park in August. Because if they're going to go full blast September 3rd, that means that last week of August, we're going to see some Halloween already in the park. But you get what I'm saying, right? The summer theme makes it fun to be there and it, it it sort of cements a moment in time and wouldn't it be cool to see a little bit more cars over in disneyland or a little bit more cars inside of downtown disney i miss the summer themes and i think if there was a cool summer theme where the summer theme had a good logo a good catchphrase they're very very good at all the car puns it's such a visual property that there might be a certain piece of merchandise that you go, man, after seeing that everywhere, I want to buy one of those. Question. Is there a Radiator Springs jersey? Spirit jersey? I mean, Cars Land would be hard to go from shoulder to shoulder, but they did Hoff. That's only four letters if I'm counting right. Nonetheless, it would be awesome to see that spirit of summer to come back. It would be awesome to see such a monumental, I think, chapter or, or, or piece of the Disneyland story. I mean, Disney park story, this land represents so much moving forward. It will always be looked at as this was the moment when they really tuned it up and figured out what this new generation of park consumers needed. Cars land provides that transformative feeling of going someplace else. And in a social media culture, being inside of Carsland is a transformative experience that you have gone someplace and when you take photos, it looks like an exotic location. Carsland represents the future of theme park design for a new generation with new demands of much more stimulation than what generations before them needed. It's a shame that so far its celebration is a popcorn bucket. Hey friends, here's another unfun one to talk about. This week over at the OC Register, they were talking about how Disneyland Paris now has a wait list for park reservations. So the idea is this, you really, really need to go July 21st, but you didn't book July 21st, but now you realize that your sister's coming in from out of town and her kids are coming with her and they would really love to see Disneyland. And back in the day, you'd be like, fine, circle it in the calendar. Let's show up. Let's rip. But nowadays you need a theme park reservation. And so you log over, you want to buy them tickets and you see for whatever reason, July 21st in this example is sold out. So what you would do then is you would go over to a wait list. That wait list would let you know as soon as somebody else cancels their reservation, your five spots open up, you are then given the opportunity to claim those five spots. It sounds pretty good. And I know that it would take away stress in some situations. And I could see it being very good for people that are trying to plan out a specific day that is around driving, traveling, 
people in from out of town. You know, there's just, there's something special that, you know, I really want to go to the parks on this date. Hopefully we can get a reservation. I know many people have been in that spot. So for that scenario, fits like a glove. It's a great fit. But and this is going to make some of you irritated, but it's a part of how Disneyland runs. Disneyland caters to the local economy. It's way more of a local spark than it is a traveling park. And by local spark, I mean, and I've come to learn this from many of your feedback, the entire West Coast. From Alaska to San Diego, far out into Utah and Arizona, there are a lot of people that are pass holders. There's a lot of people that think of themselves as locals. And God bless you. I'm not going to tell you that you're not. But what this would do for that crowd is add a, another layer or another buffer on making it even more difficult to make the park spur of the moment. I know lots of people that don't have reservations. They kind of play a game. They all have a different system early in the morning, late at night, Disney dumps it, they grab it and they get in. That would pretty much, I would say, be gone. Unless Disney did two things. They did a long-term wait list for the 21st. Your sister's coming to town with the kids. You know that example. So you're on there. But I just feel like going to the park tomorrow. Put me on standby. And I get a text message that says, your standby has been accepted. You have a reservation to go to the park today. And in fact, the standby could even hit you up at like 2 o'clock. Oh, people didn't show up. Uh, you know, we got a little bit of opening in the park. Boom, hit you on standby. The reservation thing has taken out a lot of the fun. We were having dinner a couple Saturdays ago. And we were all reminiscing, man, in any other moment in time after, you know, this group of six people, seven people, after we went out to eat, we would have just went over to Disneyland and taken a lap, had dessert there, taken a lap, ride a couple of rides. And now that luxury is no longer there. Disneyland, as people have referred to it in the comments, it's a bit of homework. You have to study. You have to be ready for the exam. You have to have it all lined in your calculator. I think that there's still a little bit of randomness left, and I would hate to see all of that spontaneous activity be fully removed by just having person after person waiting in line just to get a reservation to go to the park and wait in the line. Lightyear came into theaters this weekend and we saw it take shape out at the Disneyland Resort as a new character showed up, but it's an interesting character. So typically we have seen the sculpted or masked Buzz Lightyear who, for whatever reason, is kind of small and petite, I would feel like you would want to make Buzz Lightyear bigger. I always thought that the scale was kind of odd on how small he was. And I know that Woody stands taller than him, but I think both of them should be kind of this bizarro, like, oversized character. Maybe it's because they're just larger in life inside of, you know, the entertainment space, the Disney space, the Hollywood space. However, when Lightyear came to theaters and I have not seen it yet, but I do think that I want to go out of my way to see this one. It's the story I believe of the person that the Buzz Lightyear toy is modeled after. So in a weird turn of events, when they brought a character into the park, and I love this synergy of bringing characters into the park from movies that are airing, 
I know that it's an interesting thing where the studios pay for that. They actually pay Disneyland to do these installments. So it's an interesting way of like sending money around, cycling money around. We call that synergy. They had a face character and a face character is like Ray or any of the Avengers that you see over an Avengers campus. It's easy to follow along with. You can see their face, but I think where this gets confusing is it's an animated film, but yet when we go to the park, we see the real guy. So, okay, on one hand, it's genius because the film, I believe, is about the real Buzz. And Toy Story is about the toy made after the guy. So one looks like a toy and one looks like the guy. But that's the plot because visually they both look the same. They both look animated so i was thinking i mean this is very weird but alice in wonderland is a cartoon and snow white is a cartoon albeit a cartoon about a real person and in the park they're real people they're face characters so i don't know why this one feels so weird i guess maybe it's branding or maybe it's that the character that they have doesn't look that special. It just kind of looks like when you look at footage back in the 60s, 50s, when they would just have an astronaut walking around in Tomorrowland and you would think to yourself, they're going to die. If they're not already dead, they died that day with an aquarium over their head and the Anaheim sun. Remember, Disneyland back in the day didn't have that many trees or back then didn't have the beautiful shade canopy known as the people mover. You would die just having a glass dome over your head so luckily uh this buzz doesn't have a dome over his head but i can't quite get my finger on why it feels like visually such a disconnect when as i've proven there are plenty of face characters in the park that are from animated features i don't know why this one feels different maybe it's because it's pixar and when we think of Pixar, we just really think of animation because Walt Disney Pictures, that does Walt Disney animation, they've kind of gone both ways. And some of these stories now have an animated version and a live action version. So we've seen the character in different ways. But yeah, this one definitely feels a little weird. <laughs> That's the way to put it. It feels weird. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. It just, to me, branding wise, just feels a little bit off. But going along with the Buzz Lightyear or Lightyear being in theaters this weekend, there's a rumor, and I mean this is as thin as one can stretch a rumor, that the spaceport that he launches off of in the film strongly resembles Space Mountain. And Space Mountain, I believe, and Anaheim. Haven't seen the film, so I'm just now commenting on a rumor. But this is what I have to say. The film underperformed. It did 50 million opening weekend when it was supposed to make 70. So it didn't exactly like burn up the charts. And let's pretend for a moment this is going to happen. That Space Mountain is going to somehow be themed after Buzz Lightyear. And, and, and I could be wrong by saying this isn't going to happen. Because when I saw the original concept art that leaked about Guardians of the Galaxy. I was like, <laughs> they're, they're never going to do that to the Tower of Terror. 
that is like a weird fan conspiracy. That's not happening. And I was completely wrong. They did it. They really made it look like a oil refinery and, and made a weird juxtaposition between Carthay Circle and the Tower of Terror that always had such a nice symbiotic relationship. I mean, they did it. They really did it. So I'm not saying this is impossible, but I'm saying why you don't want it to happen. Tomorrowland is in shambles. It really is. The only saving grace is Space Mountain. Maybe Star Tours. I know some people still like Star Tours, but I, I more commonly hear move Star Tours, which you can't put it on a truck and drive it to the backside of the park. And Star Tours wouldn't really fit in over in Galaxy's Edge anyway. But I, I, I constantly kind of get a this or that opinion on Star Tours. But as somebody who doesn't like Space Mountain, I'm constantly informed that it is one of the best attractions at the park. And I've come to understand Space Mountain is a no-fly zone. You cannot touch that. You cannot do away with that. So whatever the future of Tomorrowland is, if it's downgrading it, retheming it, you still got to make a path to get over to Space Mountain because I don't see them letting that go away. I don't see the fans allowing that to go away. But if it became themed after Buzz Lightyear, it feels cheap. Like Space Mountain is a part of the old legacy of Disneyland. When the attractions were their own stories. And this is one that hits in, in hardcore in the hearts of people. And strangely, it's one that seems to be adopted by the youth. They don't seem to care. There's not a movie about it. They just know that it's Space Mountain. They're now old enough to ride it, and they just love it for what it is. Space Mountain, somehow, even though the theming is razor thin, it somehow has gotten into that magical space that only pirates, mansion, small world, you know, that there's a, like a, a cult few that are good to go probably forever because people care that much, but making it about Buzz Lightyear, but not about Toy Story. It's a weird theme. And then you also get into what I'm starting to look at repetition in the park. It feels weird that there's a star tours and a galaxy's edge. I don't see a need for both. And obviously galaxy's edge is going to win in that coin toss. You have a Pixar land. It feels weird that Buzz Blasters isn't inside of that. Therefore, making me feel like Buzz Blasters could easily go away. But if you put a second Buzz Lightyear themed attraction in Tomorrowland, so is Tomorrowland becoming Buzzland? But there's also a Pixar pier across the way where you can see him in Midway Mania. You get what I'm saying? Which kind of leads to my theory that I think we're a long ways away from a real new Tomorrowland and a Hollywood backlot studio. Both of those lands are insufferable. Both of those lands need a shovel and a bulldozer stat. But what do you put there? Think of a major IP. Now, don't don't do the uh, Rocketeer, Bricky. You got to put Rocketeer in there, man. People love it. No, you and four of your friends love Rocketeer. People always come up with this, you know, oh, what about Lady and the Tramp? It had its time. Think of, I'm talking IP. Did you just hear the conversation we had about Cars Land and making big lands that just completely surround you? What's missing? What is not represented currently? Currently. 
at the Disneyland Resort. And don't give me a weird, obscure movie. Like, what is a big, fleshed-out thing that stands on its own? Well, actually, Wally. No, Wally would go over on the Pixar Pier. That's why you called it the Pixar Pier. Jump, 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 Wally wings. It's a stretch, but you could see it. What I'm seeing is what is the IP that's completely vacant and missing, that's major, that doesn't belong in Fantasyland, doesn't belong over on the Pixar Pier, doesn't belong in Star Wars. Like, think about what isn't there. It's really hard to think about, which makes me think, if I were a Disney executive, I would say Tomorrowland at Disneyland is probably per inch some of the most valuable real estate that the Walt Disney Corporation owns. Disneyland is boxed in by Anaheim. Accidentally, a big city grew around it. To get more land, you have to tear things down. You have to buy people out. You have to get on a knee and beg for the community to give you permission to do so. Remember that parking garage that didn't get built? But they own Tomorrowland. And it's in such disarray that you could bulldoze it down to pretty much whatever you want it to be. You could somehow find a way to bend a weird path over to Tomorrowland or to Space Mountain, but pretty much it could be taken down to the dirt. And what could come up from the dirt would be something like a Galaxy's Edge, a Radiator Springs, an Avengers Campus. Maybe one of those isn't your favorite land, but that level of design, that level of theme park language that makes you feel like, man, you are here. You are in it. You have left where you just were and you are in this moment. Copy and paste everything I just said about Hollywood studios, the back lot over in Hollywood land and DCA. Same thing. It's trash. It's garbage. And if they do end up building a parking garage across the street, that could also grow out to where the bus pickup is. So there's even room to make it bigger it has parking lots around it. Like that could be in the future, something epic and big that we don't even know what it is yet. What I'm getting at is right now, if you were to take either one of these two properties and you were to build something, you would probably have to repeat something that you already have elsewhere. So the one thing that does not belong in Tomorrowland is more Star Wars. That's why you built Galaxy's Edge, bud. Also, I don't think that it needs to be littered with Buzz Lightyear properties when there's already a Buzz ride there that's meh and a whole Pixar pier across the way. That's where Buzz lives now. That's his neighborhood. Make use of that space. There's land to grow around there, and that might actually one day go across the street over to the Simba parking lot. And the Pixar pier or the Pixar neighborhoods could just keep growing and growing. But if I were in charge of all this, and I'm certainly not, I'm just a weirdo talking to himself about Disney right now, but I would say let's repaint them. Let's put some band-aids on them. Let's manage them, but let's wait on them. Because as Tony Soprano said, always buy land because God's not making any more of it. And there's not going to be any more Disneyland that's going to just magically pop up. So these two areas need to be a plot of land that waits for that next big thing. Imagine if they would have maxed out 
everything in the 90s and had no room for Avengers, no room for Marvel, no room for Star Wars. If it was just all this maxed out stuff based on everything that the company had made from, you know, the beginning of its origins to whatever they had in 1995, if it was all that, it was maxed out forever. That sounds like a park that's outdated. So now that I think about it, maybe the rumor is true. Maybe Buzz Lightyear version of Space Mountain is a great band-aid. It's a great thing to repaint it, rename it, make a lot of people mad, but get a lot of people to talk about it because you know it's a band-aid. And I think whatever comes to either one of these lands will be band-aids because I just don't see the future yet. I don't see what belongs there. And friends, the future, whatever goes in these spots, is tethered to the past. Because this land that they've owned for a while, it's the last land that they have. Last land that is currently zoned as theme park space that could easily be converted into new theme park space. It's the last of the Disneyland Resort. It's the last of imagination. There needs to be a big idea, a great idea, something that's missing to go there because this is the last move. I don't know if you saw over the week, but they showed some of the home samples for Cotino, the story living by Disney community that's going out to Rancho Mirage, which sits right next to Palm Springs in Palm Desert. One of my absolute favorite places to go and coincidentally Walt's favorite place to escape and to get away from. So the last time I was in Palm Springs, my wife and I were there. We go there every year to celebrate our anniversary. We happened to be staying in a hotel that was across the street from the neighborhood where the Walt Disney house was at the house that he sold to pay for Disneyland. I love that story. I love that Disneyland was such a mom and pop operation that the dude literally had to sell his house to get more money, had to sell his family's vacation home. And imagine your partner being like, look, I know you love the vacation home. I know we've had some great Christmases and birthdays and time away out there, but I got to sell it to build my theme park. <laughs> like what a conversation to have. And in a turn of events, Cotino showed some of the homes that they will be designing in the community. I'm really into this project. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm not going to move there. I'm not going to buy a house there. Uh, doing what I do for a living doesn't mean buying a house in Southern California. Different story for a different time. But I'm fascinated about this community. I think the story living part is very bad branding and it made people feel very Black Mirror, Twilight Zone. It just didn't settle right. But I assure you, all the people that have talked smack about this, once the lagoon is built, the hotels are there, and there's a shopping plaza and a day pass where you can hang out on the beaches, all the influencers that said this is the worst thing ever will be there being like, oh my God, this is the best Mai Tai I've ever had. Disney does it again. It's so great. So I just said, hell with it. I'll be one of the first people to tell you it's going to be awesome. I was the first person to do a live stream there. I literally walked through the sand and filmed it and took photos of it. And then I went and actually walked the outer perimeter of it. Fun fact, Cotino, I measured it out on Google Maps. The plot of land 
if you walk around it, it took me 90 minutes to walk around it in the very hot desert sun. But fun fact, that plot of land is the same size of the Disneyland Resort, the hotels. Well, I mean, the Disneyland Resort, both parks, the hotels, the parking lots, everything. Like if you drew a line around the Disneyland Resort, you would also have to draw that line on the other side of the five and you would need to include Garden Walk. And now you know how big Cotino is. So part of this is two hotels that will flank a shopping district that will all sit on one side of this crystal lagoon. And then on the other side, there will be condos and individual family homes. And they showed the artwork uh, samples of four of the homes. And I have to say, kind of not feeling these home designs. And I hope that they get a little bit more aggressive with their nods to mid-century modernism because if you've never been to palm springs it is fascinating it is literally tomorrowland it is a moment stuck in time it is the best designed city i've ever seen aesthetically not saying how the roads are laid out but it is a marvel a designer's marvel and riding bikes through the neighborhood that walt owned a vacation home in every home is completely different Every home is a new adventure, and every home is so far away from the little crappy ranch home that I was raised in. So seeing their template for these houses, there is one thing they all have in common. They have walls around them so that your yard is sort of protected and you have your privacy, which is pretty typical of, of that living environment. A lot of people's front yards or homes in general are walled off so that you can enjoy the sunlight. Some people even have pools in their front yard and if you're like me if you're from the other half of the country it's like a pool in your front yard that's crazy and it's not above ground even crazier but so far these sample homes they showed they didn't really wow me because i am a student of the architecture out there they feel a little conservative a little vanilla even though if one of these was built in your neighborhood it'd probably be like a very splashy house but I'm not seeing anything here that really blows me away, which is sad because this is a part of the country when I go there, literally just the most random neighborhood, just the designs blow me away. So none of these really go too far into the 50s. They like dip a toe in it. They look way more modern, way more sort of commercial type neighborhood. There's a little bit of nod to Spanish design, but mostly they're kind of corporate. I don't know. I was hoping that they would just go all out and, you know, within being realistic, because I, I know that it shouldn't be like a hokey theme park. It's a neighborhood where people are going to buy homes and live and do a sound investment with it all being in Southern California and inside of a Disney neighborhood. But it feels a little plastic, a little cheap doesn't feel like it has the history or the culture of the area. I would encourage them to really dial back and push the limits on these homes and really make this neighborhood a conversation. And if you're going to do story living, don't tell me a story that looks like you just live in any track home subdivision in Riverside County or somewhere out in the nice parts of Arizona. Give me something that truly speaks to a different tone to a different person, but also embraces the rich design culture of Rancho Mirage and Palm Springs. It's an interesting project. It's one I'm keeping an eye on. When I was out at Walt Disney World the last time, my friend Adam 
took me for a nice walking tour around Celebration. I really got a vibe of what Celebration was like. I filmed it a lot for future videos about Cotino. And I also got to go to Gold Oak or Golden Oak, the super, super affluent neighborhood that's inside the Disney bubble. Uh, had dinner on the rooftop of the Four Seasons Hotel there and really kind of got a vibe of what that community was like. And um, sadly, this kind of feels like it's going in that same direction. McMansions, sort of, I don't know, instant builds for people to be like, yo, I got money, check it out. And I was kind of hoping that they would go for more of a cultural significance, build things that look like they're really reshaping and retelling the story of this area. It's only four sample pieces of artwork. I could be way off. I really enjoyed the other pieces that I'd seen of this project. I just maybe going against my own advice earlier in this episode, maybe my expectations were too high. And so now I feel let down, even though, I mean, I would gladly and luckily be able to live in any of these four homes. I just think for the price tag and you're telling me story living by Disney, I would like to see a better story being told by Disney. If you come to San Francisco, summer's will be Friends, I have to be honest with you, I am a complete scam and a lie as I did not make it out to the Disneyland Resort last week. Wednesday, I was in the hospital. I had surgery uh, done on my left eye. It's a surgery I had done on my right eye. No, it's not LASIK. I actually had artificial lenses put inside of my eyes. Uh, it's a really fascinating technology that gives me vision that is way better than 2020. It is not cheap by any stretch, but I had severe trauma to the head when I was a kid, uh, which later on in life caused me to develop cataracts. Uh, I was hit by a car when I was a child, uh, actually related to Star Wars. I was so excited about a Star Wars toy that I ran across the road to go see my friends. I ran in front of a car. Uh, a woman hit me uh, through my body, I don't know, 10, 15 feet, and it was a lot of trauma to my head. So later in life, that would result into cataracts, <laughs> all things being considered. Um, being hit by a car as a child, I was extremely lucky that that was what happened to me. And also relating it to my love of Disney and these brands that I remember afterwards, they're like, what are you going to do next time? And the question was supposed to be answered. I'm going to look both ways before I cross the street. And I told my dad, I'm going to be like Hulk and I'm going to smash the car the next time. So I had it in me to love all of these properties that Disney acquired because it was a Star Wars toy that got me hit. And then somehow I thought turning into the Incredible Hulk would be a part of my recovery. So I had surgery on Wednesday and I love doing video premieres over on YouTube. Uh, it gives me a rush and I'm an entertainer and I'm always seeking the entertainer's rush. So the premieres is way that when you release a video on YouTube, you could just say, hey, here's the video, go watch it. Or you can do a premiere where you tell everybody, I'm going to show the video for the first time at four o'clock. And then through the premiere technology, I can watch it and we're linked up. We're watching it at the exact same time, even though you might live in London and I live in LA. 
and we can talk about it. And in the chat, people, you know, can react to things. For me, it's very, very intoxicating to see people react to all the hard work. Um, the videos right now, they don't make a lot of money and this is my full-time living. So I have to be very concerned about all of this, which is why I'm always looking at Disney's money. What can I learn from them? And I critique their money like I critique my own. I'm an entrepreneur, have been my entire adult life. I've never had a for real job uh, since becoming an adult. So I'm fascinated about, you know, the entertainment industry and how to make money off of it. So what I enjoy most about these premieres is that human interaction, being there with people, seeing people react to it. How do they respond to the jokes? How do they respond to these moments? The fun facts? What do people know? What do they not know? And it just gives me a way better view into my viewers' mind, what they react to. So to me, it's an invaluable experience to be there, to watch it with people for the first time. And it's a great way to meet people and, you know, to really feel like I'm not just making content for numbers and making content for people. That's why I start out these episodes, the last three weeks being like, Hey, let me know you're listening. Podcasting is so fragmented and broken and I won't get into all the details, but it's hard to know who's listening to your podcast. And I want to know you. I want to be your friend. I want to know what resonates with you, what doesn't. And I want to build that relationship so that I can be fortunate enough to keep making these, right? I mean, it's a business. So the reason why I bring this up is I scheduled my premiere at one o'clock because I knew my surgery was at 150. So they like gave me a volume and I was in a hospital bed, but I wanted to do the premiere because I didn't want to think about what was getting ready to happen. I just didn't want to lay there and like scroll through the internet. I wanted to hang out with friends. So I scheduled my video premiere. It was about how expensive Disney's become. We took all the numbers. Me and Gary took all the numbers from 2019 things, how much things cost in 2019 and showed you how much does it cost in 2020, 2022, added it all up, had a friend who's an accountant go over the numbers to make sure that my bricky math was right. Eh, I was wrong in a couple of spots. And he also famously pointed out, well, your pricing for a family of four is inaccurate because technically a family of four would be in the same hotel room. They wouldn't be paying for parking three times. So he caught a little bit of my like shock math. But the point is, is when I had something I needed to go through, I hung out on YouTube and I watched a new video that I made with, you know, 70, hundred people that showed up. That's where I wanted to be when I couldn't be at the park. I wanted to be with people like me that love the park. And so last week I kind of ended everything because as I'm doing this by myself, I'm talking about the design when design pops up, talking about the business when the business pops up. And I'm talking about the politics when the politics are in front of me. I'm literally just looking back on the week and kind of giving you the vibe of this is what's happening, but not in a reading an article to you. You're hardcore. You know all this stuff. You're just looking for an opinion. You're looking to hear how somebody else sees it so that you can measure that against your own opinion. Do you feel the same as me? Do you feel differently? Did I influence you to think or see it in a different way? Or am I just an idiot and now you feel better about your own opinions because what I had to say was completely garbage and now you know that you're right and you're welcome. I love proving you right. So I don't really have a magic story to end on, but I do want to end on one borrowing from my past. Now, the story I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this as polite as I can, but we live in complicated times and it's hard to get everything perfect. So just know that even though what I say, I might not word it perfectly. It is perfectly coming from my hearts of hearts with the best intentions. And I mean, no offense if you or anyone in your family uh, is Down syndrome. 
But one of the best things that my mom and dad did, my dad and my stepmom, I should say, and they were not progressive parents by any stretch. None, not so ever were they progressively liberal parents. Not at all. Quite opposite. But one thing they did that was incredibly smart, I don't know if it was laziness or or some sort of wisdom struck them, but my stepmom had a sister and her sister had four adult children and then their last two children back to back, their last two kids, each were born with Down syndrome. And so we were taken to our aunt's house who we were kind of meeting for the first time because she's a stepmom and you know, there's a merger of the families there. And they're like, yeah, you're going to play with your cousin, Sharon and Frankie. So we get dropped in a room and we're to play with our cousin, Sharon and Frankie. Should be totally normal. We're elementary school kids. That's our age group. I don't know exactly what age we're in. And Frankie and Sharon were 10 years older than us. And they both had Down syndrome. And so we were just tossed in this room. And I'm going to be honest with you. At that moment in my life and not having an adult explain anything to me, it was slightly terrifying, but I got over it. I learned how to communicate and I made it through the first time, but it wasn't my favorite experience because there was no adult sort of explaining to me what was happening. But the second time I was excited to see Sharon. Frankie was a little bit more non-communicative and didn't really interact too much, but Sharon was a firecracker. One of the funniest raddest people that I ever hung out with in my entire life. And more and more as we'd go over there, we just fell in love with hanging out with her. I mean, she was a character. Absolutely loved the Duke boys. Would wear a cowboy hat and radiator, (laughs) radiator, aviator glasses, and just loved the Duke boys. Just was such a fun person to be around. And what I didn't quite understand, because I didn't have the tools because I was young, is I was understanding that there is literally no difference between her and I. We have a different genetic buildup. We have a different understanding of the world, but we're people. And in this situation, we're step cousins and we like the same things. And ultimately we like having fun together. And it was sad to me when I would go out into the world and see people that would like shut down and not know how to act around people that have down syndrome. It was like, oh, I don't know what to do here. Not that they wanted to be rude or mean. They just literally didn't have the tools to just be like, hey, what's going on? How are you? You're my butt. And so I've always been very open to that. But I've also noticed how some people kind of freeze like a deer in headlights because they just don't know what to do. So they do the wrong thing, which is they don't make any move and they kind of make it awkward. And because we had this like, hey, hang out with your cousin's experience we understood Sharon and Frankie and other cousins didn't. And it was sad to see family members make fun of family members because they're kids and kids are insecure. And when they don't understand something, the coping mechanism, I understand it is they make fun of it. So yeah, it's been a sore spot for me to see anybody that cannot understand this person has an intellectual disability. It doesn't make them any different than you or I. It just means there's a little bit of a different way of communicating. And if you're good to do that, why not? I mean, if I see somebody at the park in a wheelchair or a power chair, I always go down on one knee so I can talk to them like I would talk to you eye to eye. 
And I don't know, maybe that's offensive. Maybe I'm supposed to stand there. I don't know. It just to me, it feels human to talk to everybody on the way that they should be talked to, like a person. So now that I've explained this to you and hopefully not completely offended you and you understand where I'm coming from, I have in the years thoroughly enjoyed Disney's attention to these guests. And my best experience, two experiences, is talking to a young man who is fascinated by my very red beard, which I hate. There's like trolls that accuse me of dyeing my beard red. Dude, I hate having this red beard. If you ever had to edit video, the color correction of my face goes out the window because the color correction of like the Sony cameras, like, whoa, this dude's face is on fire. Then his skin obviously must look like trash. Like the beard throws off every color correction you can imagine inside a premiere, inside of a Sony camera. I despise the red beard. And when I meet people like, oh, I love your red beard. I'm like, really? Or I meet another guy that has, oh, fellow red beard. I'm like, and you're proud of this? Bro, I want it to go gray tomorrow. But the only thing that I hate worse than a red beard is my fat adult face. So I'm standing in line to ride the Matterhorn. Kid in front of me, Down syndrome, spins around, looks at me. We're talking. I'm like, hey, bud, what's going on? You having fun today? And we're just communicating. And he's like, oh, I like your beard. I'm like, thanks. And the next thing I know, he has a fistful of my beard. Now, a lot of people, this would have terrified them. But I'm like, oh, dude, what's going on, man? You like the way that it feels? It feels weird. Their parent that they were with or guardian was, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, don't be. It's fine. He wanted to see the beard. He wanted to touch the beard. He took a fistful of the beard. It was totally fine. I was just able to laugh it off, have a good time, no troubles, innocent, innocent thing. I ended up meeting a new friend and he liked my beard and good, 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 good. It made me like it more. But my favorite memory is my dad never got to see the Disney parks as a child and he never got to see it through my eyes as a child. I took him there when I moved out to California. He'd come out here and visit. I'd take him to Disneyland. So once we were watching Mickey Soundsational and I noticed that there were two young men uh, that were Down syndrome. And so we went and we kind of stood next to him. Not like I was stalking them. I just realized, oh, there's a crowd of people. There's a space. Do I want to stand over here? I want to stand over there. I want to stand next to these guys. These guys, I know they're going to be fun. It was one of the most magical moments I've ever had. Because you could see every cast member scan the crowd. They're always looking for kids. They're always looking for who needs the magic the most. But the way that the cast members scanned the crowd and found these two young men and gave them that extra bit of Disney magic. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in the park. The way that they lit up the brothers, I'm assuming the brothers, there I go stereotyping. <laughs> Gotta make myself laugh through this one. Don't rub your eye, you idiot. You just got surgery in it. The way that their faces lit up with this little bit of extra, you know, not, not so much extra attention that it was like, okay, you're pandering, but just an extra bit of attention, an extra wave, an extra conversation. Every character came through and really just made them feel like they were in the parade. And when Tinkerbell waved her wand at them, and sent it over their way and waved at him. The one boy just lit up. I mean, it just made him so happy. I don't know their age, but I know they weren't children. But I know that they had an innocence to where 
that little bit of extra TLC, that little bit of extra attention, that little extra bit of magic. It was so beautiful to see. And it's those moments when you leave behind, will they or will they not build this thing? Oh, the executives are idiots. Oh, the prices are so expensive. They'd, they'd sell you the air in here if they thought they could get away with it. It's those magics when you realize that it really is the happiest place on earth. And the reason why I told you my dad was with me is because my dad's not very emotionally available. If you ever watched the first version of The Wonder Years, that dad's my dad. The dad that comes home from work and just kind of moans. And afterwards, I looked over at my dad. And he kind of looked a little bit choked up, but he's like, man, that was a really cool parade. But seeing the parade with those two guys, that was really something. And I thought about my dad, somebody that never got to experience a Disney park as a child, didn't really get to experience much as a child. Born poor with an absent father that had a severe drinking problem. He had to be the man of the house at a very young age. And I think somehow standing adjacent to these two young men and them getting the extra attention and my dad seeing that little bit of extra TLC that Disney can hand out, but then seeing their childlike pure enthusiasm, it may be polite to say that they have an intellectual disability, but friends, I think if we could all see the world more like that, what a beautiful world it would be. I think in many ways, he got to see the true magic of the Disney parks. He got to understand it because he got to feel it. And I think for so many of us that love this place, that's why we come back. Because we're chasing that feeling that all's not broken, all's not lost. Sure it is outside of the burn. The world can feel like it's going to hell in a handbag. But inside that berm, when the moments align properly, there is magic all around us. And it feels more real than any bad thing you could tell me when I step outside the tunnel on the right. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's look back on the week that was, a couple of stories, a couple of speculations, and a couple of things that remind me of why I love this place. More importantly, why I love talking about it with you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disneyland has now ended its normal operating day. We hope you've enjoyed your visit to the Magic Kingdom and that the memories you've made will bring you back again soon.